WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There Radio, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theories, and the paranormal. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There Radio with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Live from our secret lair on the fifth floor of Memorial Hall at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, this is the final episode of Out the Radio. I'm Joe McFall. And I am Raymond Wiley. And you know I'm going to say it. I'm excited to be here tonight. Joe, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm all right. Just all right. Come uh, okay, on. Okay, okay. I'm excited. Come on. I'm, I know. I'm really... Of course, man. This is our final episode. This is our last episode. We are, we are broadcasting live on WOG right now. And we have a live studio audience. Yeah, yeah, and a few and a few special guests in the room as well. We have prior guest Mark Tippett. Yell out a hello. Yep, and of course Austin Gandy from the Invisible College. Hello. And um, if you didn't notice, you should have noticed that was uh, the lovely Carmen, who uh, is the voice of Out There Radio, our intro and outro. And why don't you come over, Carmen? Because in the whole link to the show, you've never been able to say hi to the audience. Why don't you say hi to everybody? Hey, it's lovely to be here tonight. Thanks, Yay. Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. And of course, we have, as usual, in the booth, Aaron McGinley with us tonight. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. So, uh, Joe. Yeah. Final episode. Final, final episode. What have we cooked up for the audience? You mean for tonight or just in general? If tonight, tonight. Okay. Well, we have one of the, I think, one of our best interviews. It's something that's been building up for the whole series, I think. We have an interview with Jim Mars, so definitely. Make right. sure you hear that. Yes, and for those of you who are not familiar with his work, Jim Mars, the author of um, Rule by Secrecy, Alien Agenda, Crossfire, The Plot to Kill JFK, that's yep. right, and um, one of the main sources for the movie JFK. So probably the leading expert on the Kennedy assassination and UFOs and conspiracy in general, wouldn't he's, you say? He's got an awesome story, too. He was, I mean, he lived in Dallas in 63. He was like 19 or 20 years old. He was there, and he's been studying it since it happened. Right, and he, and he's talked to numerous people who are on the scene. So if you listen to episodes five and six, our JFK assassination extravaganza, and always wish we could have gone farther with that, you're going to get a little bit of that tonight. We're also going to talk about secret society And aliens, briefly, but for the almost first time ever. Yes, exactly. And it's funny, we, uh, we end up with a UFOologist of, of eminent fame on the show, and we right. didn't really talk to him for that long about it. But, no, no. But, but the hour we spent with him, you're going to enjoy, I think. So I think Jim Mars probably could have done this whole series for us and if we had just said okay Jim well if you listen talk, to, yeah well if you yeah. listen to this interview real closely there's one point where you start to men mentioning a chain of events that go on that that were really illustrative to him you're gonna be like that's that's the entire season one about their radio exactly pretty exactly much. yeah so but this my friend is the end of season two and their the end of the whole series. And, and, the final episode. Exactly, exactly. Final episode. And we'll talk a little bit later on about what the future is going to hold for us and things like that. But let's wrap up the idea of season two. I mean, podcasting doesn't necessarily have to have a season, but we sort of imposed that from above on the audience. Well, what are, first, what are some episodes, Raymond, that has stood out to you this season second season yeah, yeah. season two uh episodes that stood out to me well of course what is truth because i got yep. to take and and the final truth because i got to take and do field work and take a trip to washington and yep. involved with those but as far as content goes i think 
the Jonestown episode. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Guiana's Heart of Darkness. It was one of my favorites. I think. Yeah, definitely. And do you remember early in this season we did um, farewell to Robert Anton Wilson and a good riddance to E. Howard Hunt. Yes, both yeah. both great episodes and good biographies. There's been a lot yeah. of biography. There's been a lot of of stories to tell. You know, it. We I think we introduced the subject of conspiracy theory very well and and the occult in the first season and we. I think, told some of the big stories here in the second season. So I've been very excited. Very interesting season, I thought. And to me, um, I don't know, just to sort of wrap up what it, this season has been, I don't know about you, Raymond, but it's been to me about belief and about sort of the danger of belief and, you know, the question of truth and what that means and sort of where belief takes you and the dangers of that. And that's uh, to me, that's what, what's been a common thread throughout this whole second season. I agree. And we've, and we've seen one story after another of people getting sort of carried off on this, uh, this whole uh, quixotic sort of uh, idealism. And sometimes with horrible results and sometimes with, you know, good results. So yeah. it, can, it can help or hurt mankind. But yeah, belief, I think you're absolutely right. A major part of the second season. Another one of my favorite episodes, Military Industrial Complex. Oh, yeah. That it, was this season. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was this season. Right. And really more because we didn't talk that much. We let like audio clips and archival material sort of do the talking for us on that. And I really liked that. So, you know, I also liked um, that we did the original Martyrs of Comedy where we talked about Lenny Bruce and, um, and Bill Hicks. Right, exactly. Good episode. Well, Good let's, episode. Not, let's not list them We don't have to them list them all. Exactly. Go to our website, check it exactly. out. Exactly. Well, there is one one more that we have to list. Okay. Mark Tippett's on Kabbalah. He's here in the room. We was would that, be... Was that this season? That was this episode, like, 37? Okay. Something like that. Seems like forever ago. It does seem like forever ago. But, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So... Yeah, we so that's sort of the wrap up on the season. Now we do we don't want to just sit here and pat ourselves on the back the whole time. We do want to make this like a normal episode of Out There Radio, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as such, we have Mr. Austin Gandy from the Invisible College who has two tonight. He has two stories for us. Oh, oh, that's right. But before we get to that, before we get to that, I did want to mention this. Good, good call, Joe. We asked you in in various other episodes to send in clips either from the show or farewell messages or whatever to play on this episode so we do have several clips to play from our listeners and i think we're about to play the first one exactly we're going to go ahead and kick this one off and there'll be about 20 minutes worth of these throughout the episode so enjoy out there out there my name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFarland. I'm excited. Dude, I'm excited too. I didn't even tell you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. This has been a show that's been years in the making. So, what's this show about? The occult. The occult. Conspiracy theory. And paranormal. You know, something that is sort of beyond the explanation of science. A lot of this stuff is sort of, it's out there. It's beyond the ordinary. Absolutely. And you find, if you're interested in these sort of things, that you really only have to scratch the surface a lot of times to find a wealth of information. That's why we're here, because there's so much to talk about. Oh, yeah, it's all out there. It's all out there. It's very much all out there. The way our society has been built over the past couple hundred years yeah. is completely yeah, different completely from the values that we think it's built on. Mysteries of the unexplained. 
biblical mysteries, archaeological mysteries. What you see is never the whole story. What you're given by the media is never the whole story. The map is not the territory. Indeed. Um, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. Out there, radio. 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 All right. Well, that was a wonderful clip from one of our listeners, and uh, we that was from our all from our first episode, I believe. All yes, yeah, the, all of all of that audio, and you know, I, I, you know, I look back on those original episodes, and sometimes I'm like, oh, we were so puny back then, we didn't know what we were doing. But I listened to that, and out of context, like you were saying earlier, we sound pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll credit all of these clips at the end of the episode too. So if you've sent something in and we just played it, and you don't hear your name yet, you will. You will. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. So without further ado. Mr. Austin Gandy of the Invisible College. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's good to be here. It's been a it's been a bit of a hiatus, uh, but just enough time to plumb the darkest depths of the astral plane for the the real issues that uh, that matter to uh, to our our occult undead and uh, other other listeners. I've got to say I'm a bit upset. There's there's some big issues that we need to talk about. And I'm curious. What is it, Austin? <laughs> I'm curious to see your input on this. First off, I wanted to just bring up this uh, this story that recently broke. You, your internet savvy listeners have probably run into this uh, story, and they may not have stopped and given it a second thought. It's just a a strange little bit from Florida, and uh, this this deals with a substitute teacher by the name of Jim Piculus. That's his apparently uh, that's his name among mortals in uh, in mundane circles um, but Jim Piculus is apparently an incredibly accomplished sorcerer possibly aligned with the demon Vasago who governs the appearance and disappearance of objects because Jim Piculus in front of a classroom full of students caused a toothpick a physical object examined to make sure that it was an ordinary and mundane toothpick to disappear from sight only to reappear seconds later. How the hell does someone do that? It's uh, it's an incredible feat, but uh, I could describe the, the procedure, but it would be beyond our grade, and I am bound by oaths. But the, the story deepens. It's not enough that the, the vows of silence and secrecy were cast aside by Jim Piculis um, in front of this classroom full of impressionable minds. The, the supervisor from this, uh, this middle school called Mr. Piculus into his office and had the audacity, the audacity to threaten him, nay, to, to fire him um, over this, uh, this display of occult power, citing it as wizardry. This is the, the official reason given for the uh, dismissal of Jim Piculus. Obviously, this is arrogance and, and possibly tempting uh, powers beyond the superintendent's imagination to metal with a sorcerer of Jim Piculus's power. But I wanted to bring this to the attention of our listeners out here because we've talked about a lot of issues, but I haven't really talked that much to my my people, my home base. All those witches and wizards and sorcerers listening to this at home or in their cars, wondering if they were to unveil their true majestic powers before the eyes of the unsuspecting masses would they too be threatened with the loss of their jobs would they be forced to find some some alternate identity to reinvent themselves and to hide as as we have for centuries hiding in plain sight what do you guys think of this i think he obviously deserved to be fired mm. 
<laughs> pretty clear to me. Look, this is God's country, Austin. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Don't bring that mess in here, man. Keep that, keep that black magic out of my face and out of the face of my children. That's what I right. say. Look, I am tired. Of a toothpick, right. a damn toothpick. That's right. Satan. Yeah. Be- Obviously. Beelzebubba, Obviously. if you will. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, the school systems of uh, Pasco County, Florida, are right behind you guys, keeping uh, keeping the world safe from supernatural powers threatening to disappear small objects in front of children. The second story, though, is a uh, equally strange, but I I have to say it's actually a bit sad. Strange for sure, and fitting with our our material, but it 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 touches heartstrings that it probably shouldn't in me. And this one goes out to a listener base that's very near and dear to my heart, the the undead, uh, all you vampires and ghouls and... Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond. Any of you leeches uh, of vital essences out there. We've talked a, a bit about zombies. We uh, we talked about Slobodan Milosevic's uh, close call, where he was nearly prevented from returning from the grave uh, as, a, as a vampire. We talked about Jonathan the Impaler Sharky, and his bid for for presidency, and the fight of vampires everywhere to have their own representation as a political party recognized. But we haven't talked about perhaps the most ancient and mystical of of the undead class, and that is the mummy. But this is not the the story of your run-of-the-mill mummy entombed for centuries by Egyptians and uh, constrained to guard the pharaoh's tomb as a punishment for seducing his daughter. No, no, this is a very different kind of mummy tale. This happened in Concord, New Hampshire. This mummy is only about 90 years old. Brown, dry, leathery skin, jaw agape, tiny, tiny hands curled into the the rigor of death. But this mummy was not alone. It was not lost to the sands of time like so many others. This mummy was loved. And I'm going to tell you the story of how this tragic uh, series of events unfolded that ripped poor baby John from his family. It started with MySpace, as most things do. The niece of a Mr. Charles Peavy, uh, 41, of Concord, created a, a mysterious MySpace profile featuring Baby John in its profile pictures, describing its interests and uh, with the Adams Family theme playing in the background. Some families are just different, Joe. You don't have to laugh. I know, I know. This MySpace page, inevitably, as it always does, came to the attention of the authorities, and they looked into the strange case of this family, which has preserved and maintained as an heirloom. Baby John, a small, uh, possibly, probably no more than a few months old um, at the time of its mummification, um, baby that they claim to be one of their relatives. Um, They don't know much about the history of Baby John. His appearance is another mystery, uh, wrapped in ritual and secrecy. To quote the, the story that broke, well, this is, this is an old story. This broke in 2006. PV and his family know nothing definitive about the origin of their mummy. After PV's great-great-uncle died in Manchester in 1947, it was found among his, per- his personal objects, wrapped in a bunting and tucked inside a box. On top of the box, there was a circle of shells and these mysterious words, sacred to the memory of our little Hawaiian home across the sea. 
Now, the this mysterious great great uncle of Mr. Peavy apparently had a, a life of as a roamer and a traveler, um, moving from place to place, and his personal effects were eventually handed down to Charles Peavy, and he treasured little baby John as a link to the past, a visible and uh, manifest story that was close to his his blood, close to his family, but ultimately wrapped in mystery. And so the family's heart opened up to baby John. And some of us may find that a little strange and a little hard to, to believe that this, this tiny baby would show up in family portraits. Um, there's, a, there's a photo that you can find online of the baby John hanging out with one of his newborn wait, relatives. Wait, 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 wait. Are you talking about family portrait, portraits like They'd bring him to Kmart to mm-hmm. sit in on the family yeah. portrait. Or not, I mean, not to Kmart. Not to Kmart, yeah. but they, they, would <laughs> <laughs> but they would have him around like the Thanksgiving dinner table, for instance. Absolutely, he occupied a place of great reverence um, within the family. He was viewed kind of in that that venerable way that one thinks of uh, an ancestor shrine. Though the the baby itself obviously departed the world of the living early on. It had been with the family for longer than any of the surviving members. And so, as all good stories must, it it did, unfortunately, come to a sad end when the authorities stepped in and removed poor baby John from the family, citing that without sufficient evidence to demonstrate that the mummy was was in fact a relative of the Peavy family, it would have to be interred in a potter's grave. They offered a chance to have the baby John's identity confirmed through DNA testing, and a private charity was set up, which managed to raise the $1,000 to acquire this DNA testing. But alas, the ravages of time had wreaked their uh, havoc upon poor baby John's mummified crystalline DNA, and he was no longer verifiable as a member of the PV family. And so just in March of this year, this strange case of love and immortality came to a sad end when the authorities had poor baby John interred in a, a ceremony which was not announced to the family. They didn't even have a chance to say their, their final goodbyes. Um, they showed up at the funeral home where the burial was supposed to occur hours after poor baby John had already been sealed in a vault of concrete. That's sad. It is sad. In fact, it's very distressing to me. I I don't know how you guys feel about governments stepping in and trotting upon the rights of families and mummies uh, to live and coexist peacefully. The world of the living and the world of the dead is altogether too distant and far apart anyway. And when a family attempts to bridge that gap, I think, I think that should be respect. Here, here. And I would like to enjoin and, and encourage all those listeners out there who are concerned about their rights to preserve the mummified corpses of their own relatives as keepsakes to be handed down from generation to generation. They stand up and fight, not just for their own families, but for baby John. Austin Gandy, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you, Austin. Thank you. That was excellent. That was excellent. Yes, absolutely. Classic Invisible College. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And your last segment with us on the show, but we do appreciate it. Now, Austin... What, what's going on for you in the future, man? We can ask you that while you're on. We, we've got announcements about us, but what, what's up with, with the Gandhi? 
think? Well, there there have been questions about my motives and my my operations in the world, and <laughs> I wish I had good answers for you guys. Um, but but suffice to say that that at some point the invisible college must lurch, struggling perhaps, kicking and screaming perhaps, but out of the realm of the invisible and into into manifestation. And God willing, and with your help and a good paying day job, perhaps that day will be coming soon. Well, excellent. And I'm sure that wherever we go, Joe, Austin will probably not be too far away. So We'll drag him along with us. Right, or at least get him on Skype or something. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, any comments before we go to break? No, are we going to play another clip or we're just going to go in? Oh, well, we got the Jim Mars interview coming up next, and it's introduced by a clip that excellent. one of our listeners sent us with excellent. some nice words by JFK. So, uh, Carmen, are you going to send us out for a break? You're listening to Out There Radio with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. You bear heavy responsibilities these days. My topic tonight is a more sober one. I have uh, selected as the title of my remarks tonight. The illegal truth. 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 I want to talk about our common responsibilities in the face of a common danger. Whatever our hopes may be for the future, for reducing this threat, or living with it, There is no escaping either the gravity or the totality of its challenge to our survival and to our security. A challenge that confronts us in unaccustomed ways in every sphere of human activity. This deadly challenge imposes upon our society two requirements of direct concern, both to the press and to the president. Requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone, but which must be reconciled and fulfilled if we ought to meet this national peril. I refer first to the need for far greater public information, second, to the need for far greater official secrecy. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret societies decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts illegal truth. far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. All right, well, um, uh, Jim, do you, do you want us to go over just a second a brief outline, or do you just want to launch on into this thing? Hey, man, just jump in there and whatever you want to say. I'm just posting a story here that... Uh, pretty well tells the tale. <clears throat> Associated Press. Nearly 80 rail cars loaded with contaminated sand from Kuwait, read depleted uranium, are heading towards a dump in southwestern Idaho. So no, not only did we go around the world killing and leaving radiate, irradiated environment, but now we're picking it up, bringing it, and dumping it in the USA. And uh, Chad Heislop of American Ecology, based in Boise, says, quote, 
as you can imagine, the host countries of these American bases don't want the waste in their country. Oh, well, so let's just bring it and dump it here. And, and who the hell gets to hear about this? You know, this is way under the rail, uh, under the radar. If they hadn't uh, mentioned this in a Longview, Texas paper when the rail cars started going through uh, and then published up there in a little small newspaper up in Idaho, nobody would even know this is happening. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Mars, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Sorry, already on my soapbox. Oh, don't. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's it's great to have you in the studio today, Jim. Uh, you're calling from Texas today, is that correct? That's correct. I didn't know I was on the air. I'm just doing my usual rant here. Well, we figured you launched right in, so we started recording. <laughs> anyway, it's great it's great to have you on the show today. Many of our listeners here on, on Out There Radio are probably very familiar with your books already, but for those who aren't or for those that are already your fans, we're going to have a nice uh, about an hour sit-down with you today. If For you guys that don't know, Jim Mars is the author of many books and one very significant screenplay. You may have heard of his work, uh, Crossfire, The Plot to Kill, JFK, Sci Spies, Alien Agenda, Rule by Secrecy, and of course the um, eminent film JFK, which he co-wrote with Oliver Stone. It's great and to have don't you on. Don't forget the terror conspiracy. Oh, that's right. I knew I had left one out. Deception, 9/11, and the loss of liberty. That's right. And we're going to talk, I guess, about almost all of these in at least a little bit of detail today. If that that'd be all right with you, Jim. Sure. Jim, I have a just a quick question along the lines of you know news that hasn't really been hasn't really gotten out. The New York Times reported, I think it was a just a week or two ago, about the Pentagon former generals. You familiar with the story? The ones who, who are sort of getting paid to to spread propaganda on network oh, news. Oh, oh, uh, the ones who were paid and and given junkets and everything else so they could go on Fox and and uh, spew out the distorted information that led to the run up to the Iraqi invasion. Yeah. What's your take on how's that? that? How's that for all the news you can buy? <laughs> <laughs> I know the New York Times says their little uh, masthead, you know, for a century or more, has said all the news uh, that uh, fits. <laughs> right. So, so Jim, your, uh, your career is basically, I, I would say, has been marked by... A deep study into the strange and unusual nature of the world we live in, and the, and the secrets that are sometimes kept from us. Um, how did you first get into this this stuff? What 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 first got you involved in in things like the Kennedy assassination um, research and other things like that? Well, I've always I've always been fascinated, I'm, and I've always been an avid reader, and I've been reading everything I can get my hands on since I was probably in the, whenever you learn to read, third, fourth grade. Um, and then when I began my newspaper career, that interest was still there. And, of course, I, in my newspaper career, I covered a wide range of topics from start off as a police reporter and then I covered city and county uh, government and then the courts, federal and local and district courts. Uh, then I even was uh, went, went on uh, uh, travels around the world to the Middle East and to Europe and all like that. Uh, but I've always had this interest in, in the stuff that uh, that they don't <laughs> run in the newspapers, you know. I don't know. The whole range, uh, the Loch Ness Monster, uh, uh, Bigfoot, UFOs. It's always just fascinated me because as a newsman, I want to know, well, instead of saying either, oh, wow, you know, there they are, and being totally credulous, 
or instead of being totally incredulous, saying, oh, there's no such thing, and just not even bothering to look at it, I've always just want to know, well, what's the truth? Is there really something there? So I keep digging at it. I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is if, uh, if me and a, another reporter back in the day were sitting at our desk at the newspaper and somebody ran in the door and said, hey, a flying saucer just landed in the park down the street and ran off, uh, most of the reporters I've worked with would say, well, that guy was a nut, and they wouldn't even get up from their desk. Me, I'd at least get up and go look out the window. You know, I, I take those few tentative steps to try to find out if there really is something to these stories. And once you start doing that, you find out about a whole raft of uh, fascinating topics, which I'm sure you guys are already well aware of. And it's just, you know, your whole world kind of broadens and your in your worldview uh, gets deeper. Right. So when did you start looking out that window? Uh for the Kennedy assassination? Uh, well, actually, I think I can truthfully say that weekend. Uh, I know I was watching television uh, probably for 15, 20 minutes before they finally announced that uh, from Parkland that he was dead. And we know that occurred shortly after 1 p.m., which means I was watching television from about 12.45, and he was shot at 12.30. So that means I was actually on to it, paying attention within 15 minutes of the of the deed. You were about 19 or 20 years old at the time? Yeah, I was 20. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, I have a picture of me dancing <laughs> on the stage of Jack Ruby's Carousel Club that was taken just about a month before the assassination. So I had already met Jack Ruby. I'd already heard from some fraternity brothers that uh, he was connected to the underworld. That's what we said then. Nobody had, down here in Texas, we'd never even heard of the mafia. And most people had not ever heard of the CIA. That's how secretive it was. It's kind of like the NSA. You know, most, most Americans today don't really know anything about the NSA, the National Security Agency. And so, you know, they were just, uh, that was uh, a whole different time and place. We had talked a little bit last night, and you had said that at, at first you had been, I guess, sort of privy to the official story or or following that and believed that to be... Oh, about the Kennedy assassination? Yes, yes sir. Yeah, sure. You know, that weekend, see, uh, younger people today have no idea what kind of impact that the Kennedy assassination made on the country. But picture this, boys and girls. <laughs> Everything, the whole media... Radio, television, everything, of course, this is before cable, before satellite, but all the mass media was preempted. That whole weekend, and stretching into the next week for a few days, there was nothing on the radio, nothing on TV except the Kennedy assassination. Now, just think about that a minute. Even on 9-11, you could turn over to the cable channels and watch a movie <laughs> or catch some, something else. But uh, that uh, helps explain what a tremendous impact that event had on this country. Now, like everybody else, during that weekend, I'm going, holy cow. And then, you know, within an hour, they'd caught this uh, guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'm going, hmm, I wonder if he did it. And then, you know, uh, but I'm buying, I'm buying into it. But I actually began to question that very weekend because I remember – one of the first things I heard that made me question is they were already saying that there were three shots from the Skubuk depository, and there was some sound footage that was run because, hey, when they preempted, they were running everything they could get their hands on because, you, as you can imagine, they were having a, 
difficult time filling up the airways. And I saw, there was some sound footage, didn't really show anything, but you could very clearly hear these uh, shots in the background, and it was a pow, and then a pause, and then a pow, pow. There's one right on top of each other. And then within a few weeks, I was talking to some people who had been in Dealey Plaza, and now over the intervening 42 years or whatever it is, I've probably spoken to more than 100 people there in Dealey Plaza, and they all gave me the same uh, sequence of shots. There was one, pow, a pause, and then two right together, pow, pow. Okay, now at that time, being a good old Texas boy, I'd been deer hunting. I even owned a bolt-action rifle, and I knew that you cannot get a pow-pow with a bolt-action rifle. You have to cock the bolt, and uh, it takes two seconds. In fact, that was absolutely confirmed. It's right there in the Warren Report. The FBI said it took two seconds just to cock the bolt and pull the trigger on that rifle. So right away, I'm kind of going, well, wait a minute. How do you, how do you get two shots uh, right together out of a bolt-action rifle? But I had... No reason to doubt what the government was saying. I just thought, well, they'll look into it, and I guess we'll find out what the truth is. Um, but then when the Warren Commission uh, report came out in September of 64, I actually got hold of a copy, and unlike probably most everybody in this country, I actually read it. And I was absolutely appalled because a lot of the information, a lot of the witnesses, a lot of things I'd heard that were being aired that weekend were simply missing from the Warren Commission report. So I began to have some doubts, and I began to wonder what was going on. But my epiphany did not come until the late fall of 1972, even though I'd kept up with the Garrison trial and was pretty much convinced that there, had, there was a conspiracy going on. But I was still seriously entertaining the idea that it could have been the the Castro Cubans or the Soviets or, you know, some enemy or, or maybe even some right-wing organization. But in late 1972, when we learned that the Watergate burglars were working for the committee to reelect the president, and that was all coming out in court, and Nixon, of course, had maintained stalwartly that he had nothing to do with it, and then it suddenly came home. Yes, Virginia, the President of the United States can and will lie to you. And once understood that the federal government, in, in this case, in the, in the uh, example of the President, but that, I mean, if the President can lie to you, anybody in the federal government can lie to you. And once it, it dawned on me that the federal government could and would lie to you, then everything began falling into place because you have to ask yourself, who had the opportunity to shoot the president? Well, virtually anyone, including the proverbial lone nut. But then you have to ask yourself, who could cover up the facts of the assassination? And all of a sudden, you find yourself thinking, no one except somebody in very high, powerful positions within the federal government of the United States. And that is, of course, become more and more apparent and more and more demonstrable as more and more documents and more and more testimony has come forward. For example, in the wake of the Oliver Stone movie, Congress got pressured by the people, and they formed the Assassination Records Review Board, which was given the power 
to go into any federal office and dig through their files and make public anything that conceivably had to do with the Kennedy assassination. This, by the way, is where we got hold of a copy of the Northwoods documents, which you might want to hear about later. I had always wondered how that had surfaced. Our, our audience is well aware of Northwoods. Oh, okay. So. Well, then, isn't that ironic that uh, it was the Kennedy assassination and the Assassination Records Review Board that turned up uh, the copy of Northwood's document, uh, even though Kennedy had stopped that plan. It had been approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but Kennedy blocked it and said, no, we're not going to do that. We don't play that way. And then he's assassinated, and then years later, it's due to his assassination that the Northwood's documents become public. What I was going to lead to was what also came public back in the early 90s was a memorandum from our only unelected president, Gerald R. Ford, to the authors of the Warren Commission, ordering them to change the wording in the Warren report from Kennedy was shot in the back to Kennedy was shot through the neck. And by this man who has no known medical credentials, just arbitrarily moving the location of the wound from the third thoracic vertebra below the shoulder blades in the back to up into the neck so they could argue that cockamamie single bullet theory that says one bullet passed through both Kennedy and Connolly. Uh, this is, uh, that shows you the political nature of this crime. This should have been treated as a Texas homicide. According to the law, the body could not have been transferred, transported or taken out of Dallas until there had been a coroner's uh, inquest. But the Secret Service pulled guns on the Dallas coroner, threatened him, pushed him out of the way, and totally illegally took the body of Kennedy out of Dallas back to that extremely flawed autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and thus ruined any chance of a impartial study of the best evidence, which would have been the body, and precipitated the controversies uh, in the medical evidence that have persisted this very day. Let me just add that I think it's pretty ironic that later they claimed that they did this on orders of Lyndon Johnson. Um, so Lyndon Johnson, a Texan, upon becoming president of the United States with the death of Kennedy, his very first actions were to violate the laws of his own state. Isn't that just amazing, as well as appalling? Jim, I, I had a question. I, I recently saw online um, a clip from Alex Jones's film, which I think is yet to be released, but it's about the Kennedy assassination. The clip I saw has you speaking with St. John Hunt, E. Howard Hunt's son. Right. What's, what's your take on his story? Well, I think St. John Hunt, the son of Watergate burglar and CIA agent uh, E. Howard Hunt, I believe he, he is, is a truthful person. And I think he's telling the truth about what his dad told him on his deathbed. But if you really talk with St. John, he, he also admits that his dad, his dad was kind of up and down. One day, he, he, it was like he really wanted to clear his conscience, and he really started talking. And then the next day, he would back up, maybe even try to repudiate what he said, and then and go, I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't be talking about this. So it was kind of touch and go. So, But I think that what St. John 
brings out in that chain of command that he lists, starting with Lyndon Johnson down to a French assassin on the Gracie Knoll, is uh, fairly close to the truth. But even though St. John Hunt's telling the truth, I I have I still have some reservations on whether E. Howard Hunt was actually uh, telling everything he actually knew and uh, telling it. Uh, in other words, I'm not even saying that E. Howard Hunt may have been lying. I think that uh, even though he had some involvement, he probably knew and sensed what was going on. I believe that even he may not have been privy to every aspect of the plot. What, what do you Go think ahead. about this, the story of him um, being present at a payoff to perhaps uh, assassins uh, that were of Cuban origin? There's, a, there's one story where he's placed in a hotel room being witness to a payoff from some anti-Castro Cubans who had come up from Miami. You know, the, number one, it's historic fact that the CIA was deeply involved in financing, training, and and using uh, the anti-Castro Cubans. And so, you know, uh, you know, just you know, picture this. You're an anti-Castro Cuban. Somebody comes to you that says, I'm with the CIA. You have no reason to doubt them. They tell you to go do something. You just go do it. Okay, so I think that that's entirely possible. Plus, you have... That, that gets into an issue uh, involving the Dear Mr. Hunt letter, which is signed by Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, this letter surfaced back in the 70s. Uh, it was sent to a researcher named Penn Jones, and basically it was just a little note, and uh, it was dated, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was dated in uh, uh, somewhere around uh, September uh, of uh, 1963. And says, Dear Mr. Hunt, uh, I would like to clarify my position uh, before I do anything. You know, uh, something along that lines, I'm paraphrasing. And it's signed Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, Penn Jones was in the Dallas area, so when people learned of this note, uh, it kind of was linked to the Dallas area. So a lot of people then, and I think there's still a lot of people, who think that this note may have been to the Dallas oil man, H.L. Hunt. But the truth of the matter is, is that Ben Jones received this a copy of this note. Uh, it was postmarked from Mexico City, and the cover letter was in Spanish. And uh, we now know that E. Howard Hunt had been uh, serving as an acting station chief in Mexico City at about that time, or at about the time that Oswald made his infamous trip to Mexico. Now this Dear Mr. Hunt note may be linked more to E. Howard Hunt than to H.L. Hunt. That's very interesting. That's very, and, and of course that whole Mexico City story of, of Oswald going down there, I mean the picture service and it doesn't even look like him. It may actually be oh, a, a false yeah, Oswald, right. right? Right. And the FBI at one point said, well, they had taken some tape recordings uh, there uh, and it was Lee Harvey Oswald, but then some CIA people uh, got to listen to the tape, and they said, well, that doesn't sound like Lee Harvey Oswald at all. And uh, all of a sudden, now, then the tape turned up missing. Uh, it's, just, it's just more of the absolute garbage that's gone on. And all this happens at the level of the federal government. And, guys, this is what uh, all this irregularity, all this illegalities, a botched-up autopsy. I mean, they've sent the body off for burial, and before they even found out that he had a wound in his throat, okay? 
And uh, it's just incredible. Missing evidence, his brain's missing, tissue samples are missing, um, the, the casket is missing, uh, you know, and all this in the hands of the federal government. This, my friends, is what elevates a what should have been technically a Texas homicide to a national coup d'etat. So how did how did your research into this topic um, go from just you know your interest as a private researcher to you being a, a basically teaching a college level class about this? Isn't that correct? You you teach right. a class but, on the Kennedy assassination. Well, you know, um, I'm sure there's some who would say that I was obsessed with this, but I don't think I actually was. I was covering a whole lot of other areas, doing a lot of other things, but I was keeping my finger on the pulse of the JFK research uh, community, and when new bits of evidence and information came forward, I always wrote a story about it uh, in uh, the newspaper I was working for at that time, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and uh, along about 1976, I was contacted by the Dean of uh, continuing, edu continuing Education at the University of Texas at Arlington. And she asked me out to lunch, and she said, uh, you know, I've heard, uh, because I had some of the history professors out there also knew me because I, I would call them up and use those for background sources, you know, if I want to know, uh, like, you know, what about the Bay of Pigs? Who's behind the Bay of Pigs? Blah, blah, blah. And if I didn't know, if it was on a deadline, I'd call up one of the professors and say, hey, tell me about this or that. So they knew I had this big uh, interest. So this dean asked me, if I, have you ever considered teaching a course on the Kennedy assassination? And I told her, I said, no, actually, I never have considered that. You know, I said, but the thought of that really strikes me as being a good idea because any print reporter, any broadcast reporter will tell you the same thing. You never have enough space or enough airtime to really tell the story like it should be told. So... Uh, in 1976, I started teaching a fall and, and spring class out at uh, the University of Texas Arlington on the JFK assassination, and it was pretty well attended all through the years. And uh, what's amazing is that as far back as 1976, uh, the, my conclusions have never changed. I was talking coup d'etat in 1976 at a time when the vast majority of people coming into that class, one of the first questions I would ask them is, how many believe Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin of President Kennedy? And it was almost unanimous. Now, this began to change with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which about 1979 uh, concluded that there had been a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and this was based on new evidence and two separate sets of acoustical studies which showed that at least one shot came from the grassy knoll, not the book, not the book depository. And uh, after that, the numbers uh, of people who believe Oswald did it all by himself began to drop drastically so that by about 1984 or 85, when I'd ask the people coming to this assassination class if they believe Oswald was the lone assassin, uh, virtually no one would raise their hand. And it was that way right on up until last year when I retired. That led to you writing a book about the subject, too, Crossfire. Right. Uh, I was uh, 
casting about for some project. I thought, well, I can write. Why don't I write a book? Okay, well, what I know about that people would probably like to know about. And, of course, since I'd been teaching that course and since, you know, and that's kind of, that's kind of weird, too, because every fall, every spring, I would run tapes and later DVDs of uh, of all the newscast and so, and all the news film that was run that day. So, you know, for most people, 1963 is like, you know, an eternity ago. And for me, it stayed fresh in my mind because twice a year I'd see all those same newsreels and interviews and things all over again. So how, how did the book Crossfire, how did that become JFK, the film that we that I'm sure most well, of Well, I think I just, uh, I was, I lucked out. I happened to be uh, in the right place in the right time. You know, they say timing is everything, and that was it. So once I realized that I, you know, I had this knowledge about the assassination, then I determined to write a book about it, and it was published in the late 80s. And uh, it turned out that like two months after it was published, my agent got a call from uh, Oliver Stone's people, and they said, uh, are the movie rights available for that book and uh, we said well gee let us think yeah sure, sure <laughs> and uh, and what's interesting is is that the way that worked out uh, Oliver Stone had employed a former station chief for the CIA that was providing him with a lot of information he had already determined that he was going to use the Jim Garrison trial and Jim Garrison uh, in personally as the protagonist for his film uh, his big problem was he needed uh, to know the details uh, about the actual assassination in Dealey Plaza. And uh, so the CIA station chief said, well, I've just finished reading a book called Crossfire and uh, by Jim Mars, and he's got the whole thing covered. He covers everything. And so Stone said, well, then that's the one we want, and that's how they came part of that. So my book, Crossfire, dealt with the uh, actual assassination, Jim Garrison's book uh, on the trail of the assassins covered his experiences trying to prosecute Clay Shaw in New Orleans and gathering up information proving that there was a conspiracy. And it was those two books that were the basis for the Oliver Stone movie. How did it uh, How did it feel knowing that Fletcher Prouty was one of your fans? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I never fit, met Fletcher in, in, in the flesh, and of course he's passed away now, but I, I did have several lengthy phone conversations with Fletcher Prouty, and uh, he's still on my hero list. Uh, he was a very straight shooter. He knew what he was talking about, and he had a perception that was broader than just his narrow personal experience. So you had some experiences on the set of JFK that uh, were memorable. From oh, yeah. It said right. to me yesterday. I asked you to remind me of that. Yes. This is pretty amazing. I'm going to tell you this little story because I don't think... I don't think this has ever actually ever been made public anywhere. But I did see an interview with Oliver Stone where he mentioned that he thought that there had been someone watching over him to see that this movie was made. And I think what he was referring to was one day on the set when they had all of Dealey Plaza cordoned off. They had hundreds of extras to be the crowd along the street and all these cameras, all this equipment, stuff everywhere. And we had just finished shooting some scenes of the crowd and the motorcade going by, and they had uh, taken a short break. 
and all these people had been standing right in the middle of uh, Houston Street at the intersection of where Houston meets Elm, and that is where Kennedy's car had come off of Maine, made a right turn up Houston, and then made a real tight, almost 120-degree turn back onto Elm, and it was at that intersection where it stands the school book depository. Oliver Stone had tried to let get them to let him film from the actual sixth floor window. And the sixth floor museum, which is there now, owned and operated by the Dallas Historical uh, Commission, they wouldn't allow him to go and shoot out at sixth floor window. And I think the real reason for that is is because I've been in that window before they plexed the glass it plexed it, glassed it off so you can't so the citizen can't get there. And if you go and get in that window that they said was Oswald's assassin's perch, you find that the window is only a, a, less than a foot off the floor and that the window was only half open, which means he had to either crouch or lay in a prone position to fire out of that window. And there are two two-inch pipes to the right of the window, which also interferes with your ability to sight uh, down Elm Street towards the triple underpass, and plus you can clearly see that there's an evergreen tree that blocks your line of sight into the center of the street. A real problem for someone trying to make an accurate shot from that window. But anyway, back to the story. So they wouldn't let Stone shoot from that window, but they did allow him for a brief period, I'm talking 10, no more than 10 or 15 minutes, they allowed him to go to the seventh floor of the Scoobook Depository building and filmed from this window that it was a story above where the actual shot took place. I don't know why that one rather than the actual window other than maybe if you got another 10, 12 feet in the air, maybe you could see over the tree. But so there was a whole crowd of people, maybe 40, maybe 50 people who had been lying in the street, out in the street where they turned and went on to Elm, and it was uh, pretty warm. It was Texas, so everyone had kind of had just walked out of the middle of the street, and were all gathering in the shadow of the book depository building uh, there on the corner of uh, Elm and Houston. I happened to be across the street, kind of looking towards this whole little vista, and also had a clear shot at what was happening up in this seventh floor window. And I could see a ladder moving. I knew that they were up there and were going to be shooting from that window. And all of a sudden, something bumped or somebody bumped this large pane of glass. And it totally came out of the window. And it started falling down right towards this whole crowd of people that were standing there on the corner. And I had just enough time to think, oh my God, it's going to hit those people and we're going to have a massacre here. And all of a sudden, a gust of wind caught it, and just like a sheet of paper, it glided sideways and then crashed right in the middle of the street where they had all, all previously been standing, but at this point, there was nobody there. Smash into a thousand pieces. And everybody just stood there and looked at each other like, what was that, you know? And quickly they got people out there with brooms and they swept up all the glass. And everybody then just kind of like went on like nothing had happened. And I don't think most people, particularly people standing there below that window, 
I don't think they have ever been aware of how close they came to just getting their limbs and heads cut off and everything else with this huge pane of glass that was going to hit right in the middle of them. Isn't that a wild story? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what Stone was referring to when he said that there was some sort of providence looking after him uh, to see that that movie got made. It was just very amazing to see this near tragedy and then that just suddenly this glass just slid sideways and crashed over in an unoccupied space. Right. Well, perhaps it was a story... uh the story that that movie told was one that needed to be told. You never know. I mean, well, now, there's another thing, too. I uh, I was paid for my part and all that, of course, but that was it. It was pretty cut and dried. Um, all the contracts were signed and everything else. So I had no real personal stake in that movie, and I had already decided in my own mind that if they tried to come out and say anything other than what I believed to be the truth, that I was fully prepared to publicly repudiate that movie. But I didn't have to do that because Oliver Stone did not just use the information in my book. He had a he had his own uh, investigative staff headed by a very competent lady named Jane Rusconi, and with several researchers. And they went back and they went back and looked at the same documents I'd looked at. They studied the same accounts. They even went back and talked to the same witnesses that I had talked to. And, of course, they came to the same conclusion I did. So I'm not going to try to tell anyone that the movie JFK is 100% ground truth because even Oliver Stone, one of the first things he ever said to me was, I'm not making a documentary, I'm making a movie. And so with a movie, you can you have certain artistic license. You can compress time, you can composite characters, do various things to try to dr- dramatize the uh, effect. But... I'm here to tell you and everybody listening that the movie, Oliver Stone's film, JFK, is as close to the truth of the Kennedy assassination that the public has had access uh, up till now. You know, Jim, the other night I was watching his movie Nixon, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it or seen it recently. Yeah, I've seen it. Great film. There's this scene where, and I was was thinking about this because of what I, the clip I had seen with you talking to, uh, St. John Hunt, where the scene in Nixon where Nixon is in Dallas the day before, uh, I guess on November, November 21st, and he they show him, they depict him sort of in a smoky back room talking to some oil men, and there's like a, you know, evidently there's a Cuban guy there, and um, I wasn't aware, I had heard you mention elsewhere that that scene more or less took place, but it wasn't just Nixon in the room? That's correct. I think that scene was a and it was purposely done kind of blurry kind of vague because um needless to say when people are plotting assassinations uh, there's not a camera there right and they're not posing for pictures so it is somewhat difficult to prove to everyone's satisfaction but i know i heard years ago Penn jones got on the idea that there was this party at the oil man clint murchison's house on the Thursday night prior to the assassination. And then Madeline Brown, who was LBJ's mistress, and she said, uh, she told me she was at this party. And at this party was Richard Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, they were all meeting there along with some of the old men uh, the night before the Kennedy assassination. Um, 
Ben Jones always styled this as the last-minute commander's meeting. You know, do we go ahead with this or not? And Madeline Brown always told me that after uh, she did not go in the meeting because back in those days the women stayed out and the men retired for cigars and talk or whatever. It's the way it was done. And she said when Johnson came out of this meeting that involved Nixon and Jagger Hoover, that uh, he told her in a very harsh tone, he said, well, I'll tell you one thing, those blankety-blank Kennedys will never uh, bother me after tomorrow, which is pretty damning. Wow. Well, you know, um, my mother always told me that she she knew there was something wrong with the whole Kennedy assassination because she had heard that Johnson was sworn in on his family Bible on Air Force One. And why would Johnson have his... Um, family bible with him you know well i give you one better than that i can't again this is hearsay i can't guarantee this is true but i have no reason to disbelieve it uh there was quite a delay at love field and the reason uh taking off and leaving dallas and the reason for that was that later um they said that linda johnson had stated that the attorney general uh, uh robert kennedy john kennedy's brother had told him to uh, be sworn in as president and later, Bobby said, no, I never told him that. And, of course, that's uh, that's unnecessary anyway because uh, under the Constitution with the chain of command, if the president is incapacitated, the vice president automatically becomes president and has full powers. So it was kind of a show deal. But then they still waited and waited because they were waiting for the federal judge, Sarah T. Hughes, to come out to Love Field and swear Johnson in. Um, so years ago, I talked to the son of a Dallas deputy sheriff, and the son told me his dad had been on the plane, and that when Sarah Hughes showed up, she was all apologetic and saying, Mr. President, meaning Johnson at this point, said, I apologize for the delay, said, I just could not find a copy of the swearing-in ceremony. And according to this deputy sheriff, Johnson looked around at the group of people standing there, and he says, uh, if anybody says anything about this, I'm going to call you a liar. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a copy of the swearing-in ceremony. <laughs> well, he was a dangerous old one, that's for sure. You have to ask yourself, yeah, Johnson was murderous. He's been involved in several other things that involved murders uh, and has been accused of that, uh, and obviously corrupt. Uh, and a bad politician, or a politician gone bad, if there's any distinction. But he was powerful, and he may have been murderous. But even Lyndon Johnson, I do not believe, had the power to authorize or even order the assassination of the President of the United States, and that no one within the Secret Service, FBI, CIA, NSA, military, police agencies, IRS, nobody could find out anything about that or do anything about it and that they all participated in some sort of conspiracy? No. No, that's impossible. So you have to ask yourself, well, who does have that kind of staying power? Who has the power to keep the truth of the Kennedy assassination bottled up and covered up to this very day? Johnson, long dead. Nixon's dead. Hoover's dead. Everybody involved, for the most part, are dead or in their dotage. And yet, 
there continues to be this cover-up. And the corporate mass media keeps acting like there's nothing going on, even though the polls show that, like, about 90% of the public of this country today knows that Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy. They just don't really know who was behind it because the facts and the truth about the assassination have never been made known to them. So who has the power to do that? Well, you have to look behind Johnson and find out that the people who encouraged and, in fact, almost egged him into creating this terrible Warren Commission were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And then you find out that once he became president, he had 16 advisors that were collectively known as his wise men, and every single one of them was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, one of these secretive societies that has an inordinate amount of power over the federal government of the United States and who answer to the economic powers of Wall Street and the Federal Reserve and the international banking community. Oops, now wait a minute. Those people are still here. Their families are still here. Their sons, grandsons are still here. Those corporations are still here. And they do have the power to misdirect or block meaningful investigations by the FBI, CIA, police agencies, Secret Service. So now we're beginning to see the outlines of the conspiracy that resulted in the death of John F. Kennedy. I think you're you're bringing up some topics here that segue us perfectly into another one of your works, uh, Rule by Secrecy. Secrecy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tell us tell us a little bit about how you got into the idea of secret societies. Was it was it the CFR connection with the Kennedy assassination, or did was there some other some some other thing that prompted you? Well, actually, it was my 1997 book, Alien Agenda, which is the top selling nonfiction book about UFOs in the world. It's been translated into eight or ten language, foreign languages and has sold more than any other single book on the topic, especially because the topic is usually not addressed in the corporate mass media. They'll tell you a little account here and a little account there, but there's never been any effort to pull the information together and show people that there is something going on that is probably the most historic story in, in, in the history of the world and yet it's being kept from us. But I digress. After the success of Crossfire, I, as I travel around the country, I'd ask people, well, what do you think's the next deep, dark, secret government cover-up? And almost unanimously, from guys on the street to the publishers and big offices in New York, they said, well, we'd really like to know what is the truth about the UFOs. Is there really something there? And if, they, if there is... What is it? What do they want? So that led me to write Alien, Alien Agenda. And I'd already determined at the end of Crossfire that there was this small clique of, uh, or cabal of people who decided Kennedy had to go and had engineered this coup d'etat. At the end of Alien Agenda, it came down to the classic joke line for... Uh, the little UFO guys, they get out and what's the first thing they say? Take me to your leader. Exactly. <laughs> Saw a cartoon today showed the little aliens coming out and two old farmers standing there and aliens say, take me to your leader. And one of the old farmers says, stall until next January. 
<laughs> Amen this year. <laughs> so anyway, so yes, take me to your leader. And it suddenly dawned on me that probably the reason that we do not have, have not had open contact with ETs is for the simple reason that there's nobody who speaks for Earth. Putin does not speak for Earth. Bush does not speak for Earth. A lot of people don't even think he speaks for the United States. But until there is a collective humanity to deal with and a spokesman, a leader, or somebody they can dialogue with, then uh, I don't. I think that's a big reason why that they, they, on both sides, they're still keeping this issue very hush hush and and covered up. So that led me to question then. Well, then, you know, if the president of the United States, leader of the free world, if he doesn't speak for Earth, then you know, who's really in charge? Plus, uh, by this time, I was already aware of the multiplicity of evidence showing that uh, from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton, they apparently have been unable to get to truthful and full information about UFOs. They, are not, they don't have a need to know. Well, if the President of the United States doesn't have a need to know, then who does? So who is running the show? And when I begin to t- try to answer that question, all of a sudden I'm finding myself just head-to-head with these secret societies, as I call them. Although, let me clarify, it's not like they're secret from the standpoint that nobody knows they exist. Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, they have offices, they're in the phone book, they have websites, for God's sakes. So you can go and look at it, and it's not... But the problem is, like in the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, I don't care how much money you have, you cannot say, oh, I want to join. You cannot join. They have to ask you to join, and that's only after they have done some serious study and decided that you uh, are uh, acknowledging and uh, supporting their agenda and their policies and their goals, which is actually basically globalism okay they want the whole globe under total financial military uh, communication control and uh, that's what led to rule by secrecy and what I did in rule by secrecy is start off by explaining who these secret societies are where they came from who's involved in them and then I trace them and track them all the way back through history Yes, and and a good read. I mean, it was uh, one of the I think seminal works that led led us to doing this show, really. And a lot of the sources that we got. I mean, for instance, we we did a, a episode previously about the Iron Mountain report, and right. uh, that your your book was certainly the first place that I that I picked up on that, and a, and a lot of things like it. And I, and I and 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 I think it's it's interesting to to watch. Um, I guess to watch as your career has evolved because it seems like every time you put out a book, you are right. You seem to be right at the cutting edge of what people are interested in. You know. Thank you so you know? much. Thank uh, you so much. That's the only thing that really bugs me is that I understand that if I tell people something that's uncomfortable, something that they hadn't known before, and particularly something that flies in the face of conventional thinking, I totally understand why they just brand me as a conspiracy theorist, but damn it, go back and look, man, from the Kennedy assassination to Nixon's 
resignation to the phony war in Vietnam, uh, up through you know the murder of the branch civilians, through the explosion at the at Oklahoma City, uh, to 9/11, uh, everything I've ever written about, everything I've ever tried to tell people about, has has only proven to be true. Yeah, I think it's a great story, your book about remote viewing, which um, you had finished and I guess was ready to publish, and then a few weeks before it was to be released, they what they do? They just told you they're not going to... They, they, they just canceled it, okay? Yeah. And that's, I've had four books canceled on me, even though I had signed contracts, had a proven track record for sales, and had heightened expectation waiting on these books. And so, you know, uh, the only explanation possible is that they were suppressed. Somebody did not want that information getting out. I guess with a remote viewing book, a few weeks later, isn't it true that this, it was reported the CIA was actually... Yes, yes, the CIA issued a press release and said, yes, we've <laughs> been doing this, but we don't think we're getting much good out of it. You know, never mind that we've been doing it for 25 years through four administrations. <laughs> um, but uh, so we just thought we'd let you know, you know, just want to <laughs> tell you what we're doing. When, when can anybody remember the CIA voluntarily cracking open one of their top secret programs? Oh, <laughs> right. Now, did this did your incredible? Did your publisher back off after that? I would hope he, no, they would. No, no, they it had been canceled. And that was the end of that. It took me uh, well, was ninety five. Uh, took me ten, eleven years to finally get that book out. And of course, in the meantime, uh, everybody, every uh, almost everybody that had been a member of the Army's remote viewing team, it ended up writing and publishing a book. Well, I'll tell you, I, my, my, looking back, I think the reason, the main reason they canceled my book was not that I was revealing remote viewing. Uh, some of the remote viewers had already gotten out of the military and were already working on their books. They knew it was going to come out, okay? I think the reason they had to stop mine was because I didn't just settle on what these guys in the unit told me. And, of course, they only know from their own experience and what they experienced, so they've got a very narrow view of what was going on. And anything outside that is just what they've been told, which may or may not be true. But I also went far beyond that. I went back and studied the uh, parapsychological literature. I went back and looked at history. You go back to the Bible and you find instances of people having visions that come true. So... Uh, obviously, they were practicing a form of remote viewing. And so not only was my book going to be too grounded in reality and too truthful about the reality of remote viewing, but the key thing was is that at, towards the end of that first book, I uh, began to bring in the fact that every single one of these government-trained remote viewers at one time or another had personal, direct knowledge of the UFOs. And again, this is the biggest secret going right now. They still don't want the public to just know that uh, this exists and this is a reality. And I'll tell you why. Because the people who actually control our government, and I'm not talking about the politicians or Congress, uh, but I'm talking about the corporate leaders and the uh, uh, people within the Morgans and the Rockefellers, these people owe their wealth and power to their monopolies over energy, pharmaceuticals, telecommunications, transportation, etc., etc. And they don't really care if we know 
that there may be aliens out there. But what they do care about is if we know that there are aliens, then we know there is alternative technology out there, and that could cause a problem to their monopolies. Now, it, it seems to me, as we've gone through each of your works, basically in order here, that it's almost like we're telling the same story. We're just sort of adding one more piece, one more decade onto this this same tale. And you've got a new book I've heard coming out soon. And it's going to really put it all together. Right, and, and that's sort of the idea is, is that it's, it's sort of bringing the whole thing into one big picture. Can you talk – I mean, I, I know that you're – you can't talk at length about your new book tonight because it right. hasn't been released yet. But if you could give us perhaps a little sneak preview in some way. Okay. Well, I'll just say this, that I think everyone today realizes and would agree that the United States is in deep trouble. Uh, we seem to have lost our way. Uh, greed, corruption, wars, preemptive wars, wars of aggression. You know, I was always proud that I was an American because America in my mind, never started wars. We only ended them. And now we're starting them. Uh, torture, for God's sakes. I was always proud that we didn't torture people, but oh, now we do. And everybody understands this, but nobody quite knows who to point the finger to. Uh, in fact, the whole country is being divided and conflicted and made fearful. And everybody's pointing the finger at each other. The liberals blame the conservatives. The conservatives blame, blame the liberals. And Democrats blame the Republicans. Republicans blame the Democrats. And what I have done in my new book is show that there's a small group of people uh, who have uh, the very same people I was just talking about who want to keep the truth of the reality of UFOs from everybody because they don't want their monopolies upset. And these same people founded and funded communism in Russia and National Socialism in Germany. And at the end of World War II, they brought National Socialism uh, and plus uh, many, many escaped Nazis over to this country. And so the title of my new book is The Rise of the Fourth Reich. And it, uh, I think it's probably going to really create a sensation. And the only thing I'll tell you right now is if somebody says, oh, that's a bunch of BS, then look hard and close at them because they may be part of the problem. I'm not <laughs> going to claim to say that I have 100% lock on the truth, but when you read this book, you're going to find the, the data, the documents, the well-established uh, history, uh, the connections, the business connections, the corporate connections are all very well-founded, very well-documented. And you simply can, are not going to be able to say, oh, well, that's just some theory because it's just there. What, what can you tell us about, um, and maybe you, maybe you write about this in your new book, but uh, Smedley Butler and the plot to overthrow Roosevelt? It, it's in the new book. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, this is, but then I've written about that before and saw a lot of other people. That was very briefly, was uh, in 1934, uh, a group of very prominent and wealthy Americans uh, tried to install General Smedley Butler, who was the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, as a military dictator in the United States, uh, along with a um, group of thugs who were going to uh, run everything. It was an attempt to emulate Hitler and his Nazis. Uh, and but the reason it failed is because they uh, 
Smedley Butler had uh, publicly criticized Franklin Roosevelt's uh, New Deal programs, so they thought that uh, he'd be perfectly willing to go along with his plan of creating a military dictatorship in the United States, and what they had not counted on was that Smedley Butler was a true patriot. So he immediately got all the information about this plan and went to President Roosevelt and informed him of what was going on, and and they were able to break it up. All this is detailed in the new book. So would you say that the the new the new book is sort of a culmination of of what's come before? I would. In fact, uh, in fact, here's what's interesting. Um, sometime back, I was on an interview, and the the uh, host said. Uh, well, Jim, tell us about your trilogy of books. And, I, and I'm, it struck me, I thought, trilogy? What's he talking about? But then when I got to thinking about it, Crossfire led to uh, Alien Agenda, which led to uh, the question about who runs everything, which led to Rule by Secrecy, and uh, all of that led to the rise of the Fourth Reich. So actually it's now a trilogy plus one. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you call that, uh, <laughs> something. Or something. or something, yeah. Yeah, right. So when's it due to be released? It'll be out in June. Well, we certainly we certainly look forward to reading it and we and we do appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh you are our very last guest on Out There Radio. It's been a it's been a wonderful run up until this point and I got to say we have hit so many topics that we have covered before tonight. I'm sure this has been a, a real treat for our audience, Jim. Well, that's um, great, and thank you all for so much for having me. Hey, no problem. Did you want to throw out a web link um, uh, where people could get your books? or? Uh, you can get all my books at any bookstore, uh, or, of course, Amazon.com, or visit my website, JimMars.com. That's J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. Well, thank you very much once again. Okay. Jim Mars, thank, thank you so much. We're back here on Out There Radio. Great interview with Jim Mars, man. I've been looking forward to that for almost three years now. He was easily in a top – well, this is sort of all like you know history of Out There Radio. We made a list of people we wanted to talk to when we first started the show, and he was easily in the top top two or three of that list. So it was a real pleasure to finally get to talk to him. Agreed, agreed. And I'm and I've I don't know, I just I was pleased at how much ground we got to cover, how many loose ends we got to tie up. You know, we could have sat there and talked to him about UFOs or nine eleven. Either one for another, you know, thirty minutes. But we figured we hit the basis. We 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 covered what we needed to cover with that. Um and I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I know I did. Oh, yeah. So what uh what do we got going on here for the rest of this episode? You know, we we have some clips. Ah, oh, we've got more clips to play. Let's first credit the first two we played. Um, the the one. Yeah, one of them was uh, the one. The JFK illegal truth was disposable heroes. Yeah, Dustin DJ zero one from Disposable Heroes. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And he, I think he was the one at the, at the beginning. Yeah, at the as very well. beginning. Yeah. So anyway, we've got uh, more clips coming up. And uh, they they feature some of our favorite moments from the show and some of the more comedic moments from the show as well. So we'll play these. We'll come back. We'll talk about some of our favorite moments. And um, at the end, we'll make some big announcements. Hey, Raymond, Joe, and Austin. It's George Mortimer here from Media Underground. And I just wanted to wish you guys all the very best for the future. A big thank you for the wonderful show that is out there radio. I'll sure be sorry to see it go. But I'm confident you will all go on to do greater and more rewarding projects. 
I'll be keeping a close all-seeing eye on what you guys are up to in the future. So when the time is ripe and ready, I'll be there to continue promoting your fine work. Oh yeah, and thanks guys for the free out there t-shirt. It looks awesome. Best wishes to you all. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. It's Out There with your host, Raymond and Joe. So, what's this show about, man? That's where we got to start, right? Yeah. having like three pillars the occult conspiracy theory and paranormal don't make me destroy you so that was charles manson uh mechanical man so when you say I that's your favorite man. Manson song does that mean you've listened to it for more, more than like a couple a of times because that, that isn't something i would just want to drive around if you strike me down i shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine yeah i actually have that and that's how you got to be like you are. I don't, I'm not even going to get into it. I'm not even going to get into it. You are legit. Wretched slugs. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game. It was being being banged <laughs> by JFK. <laughs> Let's try this one more time. <laughs> you say it. So yeah, so Cord Myers wife apparently has been messing around with JFK. You can't say being banged. <laughs> well you just said it, my friend. So Who's that asking devil? Major props for bringing metal back into the cult. As Pat Robertson goes, well, my friend, some people will just believe anything. <laughs> yeah, but he's a blow he's a blowhole for one thing. And a blowhard for another thing. I guess you can say blowhole on the air, right? You know I've been playing to say blowhole for like a year now. I'm just waiting for the good chance to call someone a blowhole on the air. I guess you're right. I mean, it's a whale. Part of a whale, yeah. It used to breathe. So right. It's dirty. It no. It sounds dirty. So. <laughs> That's the great thing about the word. It sounds dirty, but it's totally not. <laughs> I still wouldn't want to be called blow. Certainly not. Certainly not. But O'Reilly, blowhole. Clearly a blowhole. Don't wear them glasses too long. It starts to feel like a knife turning in your skull. This guy... Um, was had a very pornographic sensibility. He kept like a ceramic phallus on his desk whenever his secretary took took dictation. You know. No pun. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so <laughs> So anyway <laughs> Raymond <laughs> Alright. So so <laughs> 
guy, by all accounts, like Raymond Wiley, like our very own Raymond Wiley, had very pornographic sensibilities. <laughs> and and um, he, so he he gets gets wind of this whole like sexual aspect of this work, right? And he comes down hard on right. <laughs> Yeah, and we need your help. We really do. Um, All right, way to go, Donnie! If you want, it is no dream. Love is law, love under will. Uh, 93, brother. And McGregor Mathers sends Aleister Crowley, already a very unpopular figure in London, or at least within this ISIS Urania group. And for some absolutely inscrutable, ineffable reason, Alistair Crowley decides to show up to this meeting as the envoy of McGregor Mathers in full Highland regalia, tartan, uh, kilt, spats, dagger, and a a heavy black mask. You want to? <laughs> sure, sure. All right. We've been we've been getting ready for this for a long time. Are you guys gonna do a skit? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Went a little something like this. William Butler Yates. I have come for the keys to the temple. Smoking, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. You mark that frame and eight, you're entering a world of pain. I'm not a world of pain. Look, dude, I'm, this is your partner. Is the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a the rules? Mark it zero. They're calling the cops, man. Put the piece away. Mark it zero. Walter, put the piece away. Walter? Is, oh my god, is that Aleister Crowley in a Scottish mask and a knife? What is that? It is, and your poetry is horrible. <laughs> Aleister Crowley, I'm calling the cops. <laughs> and that's exactly how it went down. Yeah, it's a dork. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, I'm sure you realize that it all connects. It all dovetails into uh, itself. If you like our show, send us an email at outthereradio at gmail.com. Right, or visit our website at www.outthereradio.net. There's uh, an archive of all of our previous episodes, all 40-something of them. And um, bonus materials available in our forums. Chat with people that uh, have... Blow the roof and break that signal. <laughs> wait, boys, wait. You're making a big mistake. You made the mistake. No, no, you got to listen to me. I thought you boys understood. It's business. That, that's all it is. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. I'm dumb in hell. I don't know how much a whole lot of nines are. Now, maybe that's it, gentlemen. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know everything in the world. Maybe I'm stupid. But if I don't, I got some men on my staff who do. The goals for this country are peace in the world. And the goals for this country are a compassionate American 
for every single citizen. Not funny, haha, funny queer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, uh, to our listeners, keep listening every week. It's Thursdays at 6 p.m. This yes. is out there. Um, I guess that's it. I think we got all our bases covered. Yeah, thanks for listening and tune in next week. Don't lie to yourself. It gave you pleasure. You've been listening to Out There. Hey, we're back. Joe. Yeah. That was funny. That was that's a great clip. That was very hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of our some of my favorite moments from our shows yeah. too. You might have caught the um the I guess that's from the Wilhelm Reich show. Yes, yes. Yeah. The uh came down hard, phallus yeah. on the desk. Yeah, why are we even remind they just heard it. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I so was, they know yeah. what happened. Right. Good stuff though. That was very, very that showcased the comedic elements of our show very well, <laughs> right. I think. That was uh, from Sean Hogan, yep. one of our listeners, and we do appreciate you uh, submitting that. Um, so, yeah, we have another clip coming up, which harkens back to our interview with Robert Forty. Right, Joe? This was mm-hmm. uh, this was a, a, a big one for you, I know, because you, uh, your association with maps and things like that. Yeah, it was our first uh, show on psychedelics, I think, and this is uh, some of the sort of best of clips from that interview. This was sent to us by Frederick from Norway. Right, and it does have that sort of Norwegian sound, if you listen to the music in the background. kind of reminds you of Circle or someone in like fact, that. In fact, I think the remaining clips, some of these are original audio right, tracks. Right, right. So... If you, you know, made the music yourself or whatever, extra props right, to you. Right, Exactly. So, oh, and I, also we heard from George Mortimer uh, and his sort of farewell message to right, us. Right, from Media Underground, and we'll, uh, we'll, make, we'll talk a little bit more about him later on. So, um, Aaron, if you cue up the clip, uh, let's save democracy. Entheogen is a word that was devised in the, um, around 1979, between 1979 and 1980 by a team of scholars, really led by a man named Gordon Wasson. It's a word that comes from the Greek entheos, which means God within. So entheogen means a, a substance, a plant or chemical substance that generates or awakens a sense of God within. The word psychedelic has a lot of connotations and, and um, sets off a lot of red flags. And so entheogen gives us a chance to um, start the conversation all over again. In the 1960s, when these drugs were kind of rediscovered, there was at first a great deal of enthusiasm for them. But very quickly, the established authorities in religion and psychiatry became alarmed that the experiences that these substances caused were very, very difficult to explain in the paradigms that govern these professions, medicine and religion. Number two is that it it makes the authorities a little less relevant. You know, religion, orthodox religion is the way to control people. And the way it controls people is that the king, the priest, have access to God. And if you want to know God, you have to obey their rules, you have to 
work with religious orthodox. What psychedelic drugs show you is that there's another way of going about this. I ever learned about LSD was in um, 1967, and it was on the cover of Life magazine. And I was only 11 years old in 1967, and I, I took the magazine into my fifth grade class, and I asked my teacher, what does LSD stand for? She kind of smiled, and she said, let's save democracy. That was from our interview with Robert Forty, which is, what episode was that, Raymond? That was early like on. Like episode 13, 14, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. It was a real pleasure to talk to him. One of my favorite interviews. Right, and the, one of the best one-liners of the whole series. Let's, Let's save, save democracy. democracy. Yeah. And then that clip, again, was that was from Frederick from Norway. Frederick from Norway. Thank you very much, Frederick. Yep. And uh, up next, we have a clip from, me and Joe decided this during the break, from our number one fan our number, number one fan of all time alan lee alan lee who has his own uh podcast the invisible web we've actually both been interviewed on that that's right so and go go and listen to those interviews and, yes. and the rest of his shows alan's a, alan's a uh he's a funny guy he his, his uh podcast is he's very interested in the occult and he has some he's had some really good people on there actually. he had margo adler on he had show. A, yeah he had margo adler um he had us right <laughs> how could you get better than those two right right, right. there and so, he, but he also talk, likes to talk about mixed martial arts. So if, if you're interested in that, and professional wrestling, and professional he wrestling. is the master. Of, he, he is like he's like the Ric Flair of the podcasting world. Okay, <laughs> so I hope I hope he'll like me saying that. Big props, Alan. Anyway, so uh, Aaron, if you cue up Alan's clip, out there radio, the ultimate conclusion with music by Seda Sestas. Zany occult Nazis episode. That's right. Those those crazy, <laughs> crazy occult Nazis. He's known as Popo Bawa. Now, the name comes from the Swahili words Popo, bat, and Bawa, wing. So he's a bat-winged creature. Now, the M.O. for this, this being, who is described as a cyclopean dwarf or sometimes an ogre with great bat wings, is a little extreme. The Popo Bawa primarily attacks men and only in their own beds, resulting in a recent rash of many men find themselves sleeping outside in streets, huddled around great bonfires, or on their porches after reported attacks. And I'll get to why these attacks are so reported. He attacks men as they sleep, overpowering them, holding their faces to the floor, and sodomizing them for up to an hour. To which the local police replied, make sure he doesn't grab you. That, that very same afternoon, around three in the afternoon, these fellows broke into the tomb of Slobodan Milosevic and Pozarovac and plunged a three-foot hawthorn stake through his chest. These guys were like his uh, liberal political opponents, mm -hmm. right? They didn't want him running for office as a vampire? Exactly. Yeah. They didn't want a, uh, a Strom Thurmond kind of situation <laughs> <on their hands. laughs>
So we're back. Thank you, Alan. That we, was also if you caught it a birthday message to Raymond from earlier. This. Yeah, he sent it to me back in February. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but you probably have. It's been sort of a big tease leading up to this last episode. We've been sort of dropping the hint that it was coming for like <laughs> six or eight, eight, months, or eight months. Yeah, but it's finally here. Can this you believe it? it? Yeah, final episode. We're not lying. We're not like beating around the believe bush it. Here. You're in the middle of it right this now. This is it. You know, the first time, Joe, I got to tell you this story. Tell me. Uh, many years ago, when the film Fellowship of the Ring came out. Um, it no, was so never, built up in my... heard of it. Oh, yeah, shut up. It was so <laughs> built up in my mind, you know, seeing this movie of a book that I read so many times, that when it started, I didn't believe I was watching it. I thought I was, like, watching some kind of preview or something, and like I'm, like, four minutes into the movie before I realized that it's going on. This isn't so, a preview, man. This is live. This is it. This is it. So, um, got more clips coming up. What do we got next? Oh, uh, Aaron, just, just, just play something for us, hon. I'm Joe McFall. Welcome to the show. Yeah, We've I got think, a really great one tonight, I actually. I think so. I think so. We have a lot of uh, audio yeah. material sort of swirling around, ready ready for you guys to listen to, and hopefully a lot of stuff that you haven't heard yeah. before. And uh, we're joined in the studio tonight with Austin Gandy. Say hi, Austin. Hello, Raymond. Hello, Joe. Hey, Austin. And uh, he'll be back on. And Welcome just, back to the show. <laughs> yes. He'll be back on in just a few minutes for uh, some more crazy, weird occult news. Oh, yeah. And we are here tonight to pull your cosmic trigger. Superman 1, you know, Marlon Brando and that shiny white outfit. Saving Kal-El, the baby Kal-El. Yes, that's yeah. right. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That could just be just a few years away from right now. You so, might have to save your own Kal-El. Yeah, build, build, build your little crystal spaceship yeah. because the time, the time, it's not. It's, it's imminent. We have some uh, out there news segments. An 18-inch frozen block of ice fell in this guy's car. Out of nowhere. Of course, some people are pushing like the UFO angle. So let me give you some backstory on what, uh, so so we can understand the relevance of our, our uh, recent discovery. So in April of 2005, a young nun first heard the voice of Satan. This is obviously a spiritual problem. Any theories on this? It has happened uh, fairly often within recently around the country. It happened, in, I guess, in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago. 
Those crazy, crazy occult Nazis. As you know, backwards as that sounds, the larger issue is that there's something wrong with our society. Of course, I mean, isn't that usually the larger issue? And what are you going? What are your thoughts? I think it's a, I think that's a very good point. But when it comes to the people, you know, just living, you know, their day-to-day lives, there is a sharp distinction between, you know, the the grander societal issues and you know, the the traditional ones. Thank you, Austin. Yes, that's yes. very interesting story. That very, was, that very was good stuff. That was yeah. good stuff, and a good moral sort of dilemma that I had, had never run through my mind before. Yeah. So that that's that's some good classic Invisible College right there. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. I think this tape is fake. Is the tape fake? I don't know. On the one hand, you know, why would this guy fake a tape? Right, and I don't understand how he could get away with faking a tape. This guy isn't new on the scene. He makes some interesting claims. So I think that, you know, in terms of if it's if it's fake, it's a pretty good fake. And, you know, it's a, a good hoax, we'll say. Um, but I don't think it's a fake. I don't think it's a fake either because the story is believable. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Like, regardless of, you know, who's telling the story, it sounds plausible to me. It's a re- if the tape is real, is the story fake? I don't know. It's hard to tell. That was a clip uh, sent to us by Eike from Eichweiler, Germany. Yes, thank you very much, or Danke, I guess, would be yeah, the correct very terminology. Nice, very nice, Raymond. So, um, Impressed by your German, I'm sure. Yes, thank you, yeah. thank you, thank you. Um, so, anyway... We have one clip left, but we're going to save it for much closer to the end because I feel like it's a great it's a great closer okay. for us. And th- that last one is from Jay Turney, right? Uh, Jay Turney so is that, the tape fake? That's, no, that's no, that's that's yeah, so the one that we're about to the one oh, that we're yeah. going to play last. The last is, one, yes, is from Jay Turney, yep. aka Throwback Soul so, from Georgia State, from Georgia Atlanta. State, yes. Yep. So right here, local. So and. Um, You'll see why we why we saved it for the end. Right. When what we do get we do? It. Want to do our thank yous? What do we got? Um. Well, let's see. Do we? Um. Well, you know, you save the credits for the end. Okay. Right. Okay. So, um, should we make announcements? Uh, yeah. Well, let's let's have a little wrap up banter. Okay. A little like so. I what do, do what are your feelings coming? That we've been doing this, what two and a half, almost three years now. Yeah, and it's sad that it's over on the one hand, but of course we do have stuff to talk about for the future. So, Joe. We've, well, we've been talking to the disinformation company, uh, disinfo.com, and uh, one of the things that we are in talks with them about is doing their official podcast. So keep an eye out for that. That's pretty much going to happen. Right. Yes, that's, that's going to be our new series. And we, don't, we can't tell you exactly what form it's going to take, although you can probably sort of imagine what it'll be like. And we can't give you a release date yet. Right. However, we want to let you know that um, if you're subscribed to this podcast right now, especially on iTunes, that you're going to be able to get at least the first episode of this podcast on the feed that you have right now. So your feed that has all the episodes out there listed in, in, in your iTunes podcast section, sooner or later that's going to pop up with... Episode one of Disinfo, the podcast, or whatever it's called. Yep, and it's um, possible that we can run the episode, the run parallel feeds. So if you're already subscribed to Out There, then you may already 
always be subscribed right. to Disc Info. And that that is for your ease more than anything else, to make sure that you you know can continue along with us. But if you really want to help us, make sure that you subscribe to that new feed of Dis- that the feed that sits by itself of Disinfo the podcast or whatever it's called. Yeah, because that's. That's the main thing that ranks us in the iTunes podcast directory, and that's a big thing for podcasters like us. So, yeah, yeah, that's the big announcement, y'all. Y'all have been asking and asking, and we've probably gotten 100 emails asking this one question. What are you doing next? Just a hint about the format. We've In our Talks to Disinfo, what we plan to do is interview their authors and filmmakers and uh, as one podcast and also perhaps have something sort of like a disinfo news type podcast Austin has agreed to stay on with us right. we're going to drag him kicking and screaming into our new into our new endeavors right and our new podcast uh, stuff so keep an eye out for that um, you know it isn't the um, you know it, it, it it's it's sort of like signing with a label if we were a band or something, <laughs> right. you know. Right. So, but but yeah, keep an eye out for that. That's coming soon, and you know we would not leave you behind. You probably wouldn't let us anyway. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's the announcement, and uh, yeah. Anyway, Joe. Yes. Time to roll the credits. Roll on the out credits. There radio. First of all, big we, thanks to Carmen Champagne. Yes. For being the voice of Out There Radio. Austin Gandy of the Invisible College, we we do appreciate all of your additions and your awesome, awesome delivery. Thanks to Aaron McGinley, our producer. You are you are great. Yes, our past producers, Stephen Swigert and Travis McReynolds, also known as Travis McAwesome. And those guys pale in comparison to Aaron, but big props to them anyway. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Website and promotional help from Kyle Zielinski, designing our original posters and flyers and uh, our original version one of the OutThereRadio.net website, to Ben Teague for version two of OutThereRadio.net and for all of his other help, and check out his awesome podcast, Eerie Radio, which you can check out an interview with with me, yeah. Scratching the Surface of the Occult is the name of the episode. But, hey, there's, there's way better stuff on there than me, I promise. So um, thanks to John Moore, the graphic artist that did the Out There Radio t-shirts. Go get a t-shirt, outthereradio.net slash store.html. Yeah, help us um, support uh, this podcast and this feed, our audio files. You know, that stuff that's, that takes upkeep over time, and that's that's – that's the best way that you can help us with yeah. that, or um, just donate to us through PayPal or send us a check. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about some um, awesome podcasters that we know. We all already mentioned Erie Radio, Ben Teague, and Alan Lee of the Invisible Web. Let's also mention Ken Eakins. He's also had us on his show, which right. is called Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Right, and Laura Moon from Full Moon Radio. She's a, had us on her show. A mainstay in podcasting land for as long as we've been around, yep. that's for sure. Yep. Um, let's talk about some out there radio super fans. Oh, my God. Marie and Julia from MySpace. You guys are both totally awesome and um Thank you for your continued support of us. Thanks to Bill Weber for early encouragement when we first started the series. And he sent us some great emails, and we had some great conversations with him. And he was, he's one of our earliest fans. And big thanks to Bill Weber. And, of course, to uh, Nigden at Above Top Secret, who is also a big contributor to a big supporter of our show. Right, especially at the beginning, put, putting up some of our episodes and mm-hmm. links in the Above Top Secret forums. And we were not lost on that uh, 
gesture of yours. And, of course, to our super fan, Alan Lee. That's right. The number one Out There Radio fan. To Out There Radio affiliates and partners, we want to extend a big thank you out to you guys. Anomaly Radio in Austin, Texas. Robin, Robin Valley Community Radio in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, Media Underground, uh, George Mortimer's uh, site. That's right. WPPP Hot 100.7 here in Athens, Georgia. And, of course... A big thanks to WOG for making all of this possible. That's right. And that's this is my last broadcast on WOG, Joe. I've been here for um, four and a half years now. Raymond graduated today. Thanks, guys. So, yeah, and so at WUOG, I want to thank a few people by name especially. Thanks to Greg Knopf and Tommy McGeehee, the first and second incarnations of the uh, digital archiving director here at the station. You, you guys has helped getting podcasts up and doing uh, work with the other podcasts at the station has really been an inspiration, and we, we do appreciate it your support throughout big also a huge thank you to Aaron White the former general manager and webmaster here at WUOG she was the one who who first showed us how to do XML and first That's created right. a way for us to generate the XML that you use for your podcast feed so um Thank you to you, Joe, speaking of XML oh, feed, for writing that awesome program yep, that yep. Uh, generates our XML now. And also a big thank you to Disinformation and to Ralph Bernardo at Disinformation for helping us especially get these last two guests, Eric Ruling and the inconquerable Jim Mars. Joe, wow, it's... Thanks well, to you, Raymond. Thank you, Joe. It's been a long, strange trip, my indeed, friend. Indeed, indeed. You know I was hoping you wouldn't say that, but whatever. <laughs> You don't like my Grateful Dead sorry, references? Yeah, you well, know, you know, whatever. 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 <laughs> so, it has, um, though. No, it's been a real pleasure to do this series, and I look forward to working with you right, in the future. No. And, you know, I totally forgot we were supposed to have this, this like ceremonious occasion in here today where um, you signed the contract for Out There Radio. Uh, for it to be off of WOG and our Oh, our do you custody. have the con- Where do I sign? I don't have it with me. I totally forgot to bring it. I was about to prick my finger and everything. Right, but rest assured, Joe, before this day is out, will sign the contract making Out There Radio the personal property of both me and him and Out There Media Group, which is our little company. Yep. Whether we do anything with that, I don't know, but yep. it'll, it'll certainly be part of the production uh, on our new series. So, yep. uh, Is that it, man? Is, is that... Uh, I think that... Oh, well, we've got to make our announcements. If you like our if you like our show, visit our website www.outthereradio.net or send us an email at outthereradio at gmail.com. If you'd like to chat with me, you can uh, log on to AOL Instant Messenger and chat me up at Out There Radio. That's my screen name. Uh, let's see what else we have. T-shirts oh, yeah, available for sale. You know, check those out. Just click on store in our website. Uh, anything else? Uh, visit, us on, visit us on MySpace, Facebook, wherever. Right. Yeah. And Send us a message. You know, we like to hear from you. Exactly. And if you'd like to uh, volunteer to help us with any future endeavors, if you have some skill or something that you want to contribute, let us know. We are, um, even though we're going on to new projects and we'll probably have some pretty heavy hitters for our partners, um, we are still going to need help and we're still going to be producing all of this ourselves. Yep. And at our own expense. Yep. And so, this, by the way, has always been non-commercial, and we want to always keep it that way. Right. So these archives will always be available for free yep. on the website. Yep. So uh, we, we thank you very much for listening. Um, is there anything else? My name is Joe McFall. My name is Raymond Wiley. Carmen, will you uh, bring us out?
You've been listening to Out There Radio, a presentation of WUOG, Out There Media Group. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.outthereradio.net. Yay! Raymond, I'm excited. Dude, I'm excited too. Dude, I'm excited too. You know, the whole irony of our secret lair being in a very public place and me saying the exact location, like, pretty and, much... And very low-fi. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. I'm not going to fly past it. I'm not gonna fly past it. I'm not gonna fly past They were basically fascists. I mean, that's the best way to look at these people. You know, the how the high government officials controlled all the major industries, and the people on the countryside were bitterly, bitterly, bitterly poor. The church was founded by J.R. Bob Dobbs, our, our, our uh, black master in the world over there. With a splinter in his paw. Oh, the disciples did run a shriek and what a big blizzard, Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great clip.